Hello and welcome to ATN World News. I'm Leah, and it's great to be with you, the audience all around the world. Today we have Chuck Gerard with us. And Chuck Gerard is truly among one of the very first to start the Jesus Movement music with his band called Love Song. And later Chuck became quite a successful solo artist on his own. Uh, you may remember uh, one of his uh, tunes, uh, Sometimes Hallelujah. That was a huge for uh, Chuck. So I'd like to say good afternoon, Chuck. Good afternoon, Leah. I guess it's even more toward evening where you mm. are, huh? Yes, over here on the East Coast it is. And uh, what a wonderful thing it is to have you by Skype and have a great visual uh, of such a historic figure. I keep saying that uh, about these artists, but honestly, it's, it's a privilege to have some of the very first to have started their own genre, uh, when you think of it. Uh, Chuck, I'm going to hand the mic over to you and let you talk. Tell me the story behind Love Song. Well, we started out uh, when we met, we were not Christians. Uh, we were actually living communally as a, a bunch of hippies seeking God through all the Eastern philosophies. Uh, you know, the, all this, it was, this was mid-60s, so, you know, the Beatles had uh, come out saying they had taken LSD, so we felt like, oh, they're on our trip, and we started listening closely to their music for little hints and, you know, where the world was going. We thought they were sort of spiritual, uh, you know, uh, musical prophets. Bob Dylan said that he took LSD. So we felt this camaraderie uh, with this culture that was driving this whole supposed spiritual revolution of seeking God. But we had narrowed it down to the Bible. And there was about ten, uh, eight of us living communally at this time. There's a really long story behind this, but I won't take the time to tell. But uh, we wound up in, Salt, in, um, in uh, uh, Laguna Beach, California. And we were kind of a rare type of hippie because we were hippies with a little bit of money. We had about eight guys at different times living in the um, in the house, a beautiful home overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And uh, we could afford that because we would split into a couple of bands and we'd get a job in a nightclub and we were earning money. But at the same time, at this particular point in our lives, we were miserable because many of us were either had either been in jail for drug offenses or were facing trial. I had been arrested with a couple of other guys in Las Vegas, and uh, my trial was uh, six months later. And so I had that hanging over my head, and uh, we started to, we were really narrowing it down to whatever we landed on spiritually had to include Jesus, but we weren't really sure who Jesus was yet, or, you know, I knew the Bible Jesus from my nominal Christian upbringing, but, you know, I didn't know if that's what it really was. I didn't even know if God was personal at that point. But we were being very honest with God, and we were just saying, you know, if you're, it starts out with, if you're really there, speak to me. And then we felt guidance through the whole thing. And uh, by the time that we were in Laguna Beach, we were pretty much down to just reading the Bible and a few other things. And uh, we started to hear about Calvary Chapel. And uh, we used to, when we when we first started to hear about it, it'd be uh, picking up hippies along Pacific Coast Highway there in Southern California. And we used to do that to get free drugs. You know, you get a hippie in the car and he has a little weed and he offers you a joint. But now these hippies are getting in the car more than once and they're saying, hey, you guys hear about Calvary Chapel? We found Jesus up there. You know, our response would be, uh, we're looking for him. Is that where you found him? You know, so we made our way up to Calvary Chapel. It wasn't at the same time, but it was uh, each one of us in our in our own timing. 
I think one. I think Fred went up to Melody Land, which was Ralph Wilkerson's church. But the rest of us started going to Calvary and got all got saved within two or three week period. So we were going um, to church every time. Well, the door was open seven days a week. So if we weren't busy, we were in church. And uh, we were only going there a few weeks. And they had a hippie preacher named Lonnie Frisbee and another guy named Mickey Stevens. And we loved those guys. You know, we thought, wow, a preacher that looks like Jesus. And, and then it dawned on us, you know, our music, we look like Crosby, Stills and Nash or something. So why don't we see if our music would be a really good fit? Why don't we see if the pastor will let us play? So we went in on a weekday and um, we asked them, the secretary if we could talk to Pastor Chuck Smith, the you know, the founder, and he's now gone to be with the Lord. But he was uh, the pastor there. And she went and got Chuck and he took us out to the sanctuary and interviewed us for 15, 20 minutes. And um, years later, he told me, he said, when I took you guys out to the sanctuary, there was no way that you were going to play on my, you know, on my uh, platform with your long hair, your beards, your drums and guitars. But he was being polite is what he said. But then he asked us to play a song. So we played a song for him and the Holy Spirit fell and touched his heart. And the next thing we knew, he asked if we could play that night. Pretty good audition, you know, so... Uh, we said, is the, is the meeting at 7, like usual? And he said, yeah. He said, well, Fred Field, our guitar player, is doing weekends in Orange County Jail, but he gets out at 6, so I think we can make it. And so we went and got Fred from jail about 6 o'clock, picked up his instruments, and uh, went to Calvary and played with Lonnie that night, a youth night, for the first time. And it really was an explosive moment, kind of a, almost a paradigm shift at that church, at least. And it really opened the floodgates. You know, uh, hippies were very evangelistic. And now they had they could invite other hippies and say, oh, you've got to hear this preacher that looks like Jesus and this band that looks like one of the bands mm. of the day. So um, we we played and the church grew from about um, 200 to 2000 in literally four months. I'm not. I'm not exaggerating. And we had to put up a circus tent for a couple of years that held a couple of thousand as the crowds grew weekly just by great numbers, huge altar calls. Every time we'd give an altar call, sometimes 60 percent of the audience would come to the front to receive Jesus for the first time. And so that was the beginning of our ministry there. And uh, then we started getting invitations to other um, events uh, other churches, and uh, in 1972, in the middle of 1972, we got invited to an event called Explo in Dallas, Texas, Explo 72, and uh, we drove across the country to, not across the country, but to Texas from California, and uh, on a Friday night, now this was a huge gathering for the people that don't know, it was kind of like the Christian Woodstock, and uh, there were about 130,000 people from all over the world that attended that had never really, they were, you know, they'd never really seen hippies minister. They weren't sure if we were really saved. And um, so on a Friday night in the Cotton Bowl in front of easily 130,000 people, we played uh, for, for the first time that many people throughout the world that were really questioning whether this hippie thing was real or not, we played four songs, and after we played, none other than Billy Graham got up to speak. And I always look back on that, and I've had people confirm this to me, that it was sort of a watershed, kind of a paradigm shift movement, um, where people opened their mind to the idea of maybe this music can be harnessed to communicate the gospel. And we sort of, uh, you know, we sort of modeled that for, for them. A lot of people had questions about whether you could really use this music to, you know, communicate the message of the gospel. And so we modeled that for them. 
And then one thing led to another, and we just continued our ministry. We traveled the nation, and uh, that was how it all came to pass. It's an interesting history, and it's a rich one. And the music with the Jesus people, and then later on called CCM uh, music, is very rich indeed. It meant something. Um, A lot of the lyrics are so deep and meaningful. And today... It's become so synthesized and just not as meaningful. But, uh, wow, I, I encourage people to uh, listen to some older music, the, the CCM. Uh, tell me, Chuck, for you personally, uh, what was it like moving on and going into your own solo career? You did very well with that. Well, that's always a rough transition, you know. Making the transition is always hard when you come out. People have to realize, and, and I don't mean this in a boastful manner, but for that about that three years, Love Song was the most popular band in America. Uh, Larry Norman was already doing contemporary Christian music, and he was undoubtedly the first, but Larry was too edgy for the church. So he was really playing more for non-Christians and edgy Christians at one. It was more of an evangelistic uh, lyric style that he had. And then Andre Crouch, of course, was doing a contemporary expressions of black gospel. It's mm. fair to say that I think that Love Song's role was to kind of model a, a user-friendly, parent-friendly type of way this music could be used to communicate the gospel. And uh, we became, for that reason, that we were more, um, you know, um, universally, what's the word, um, we were able to be approved of more easily because our music was more mellow, not that rocky, and lyrics were strong. And so when you achieve that level of, of visibility, it's hard to break out of that group image into a solo uh, career now ministry. Now, I wasn't really I wasn't really thinking about, you know, at the time I, start, I started, here, here's really what happened. I had a surplus of songs and we were only making, we only made two albums, by the way. And uh, so there wasn't enough room on every record to do all the songs I was writing. So I thought, well, I'll start a solo project and I can do it on the side. It doesn't have to be the main deal. Little did I know that we were going to disband after about three years together. So I already had the album going uh, by the time we disbanded. So I was already in progress. And the album came out in 1975 and we disbanded somewhere in either late 73 or early 74. So... um, I was already in progress with that album, and I uh, had received the song Sometimes Hallelujah that you mentioned, which was the first worship song that I'd ever written. And I had these other kind of mellow, um, you know, real easygoing lyrics, and I purposely chose those type of songs to make the transition, even though I wrote more controversial subject matter later on about the struggles of Christianity. This was more about praising God and, you know, enjoying God's presence and all that. It was evangelistic, too, but... It was more um, easy, you know, lyrically on people. And so uh, the, 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 um, the theory worked. And then, of course, sometimes Hallelujah became kind of a hit and other artists started to do it. So that was really the song that catapulted me into the public eye as a solo artist. And that's how I made the transition. And then by that time, the album came out, the group had disbanded. So it was good timing for me. And I really say that, you know, God did it because it's so hard to um, to make that transition. If you look at any group, major group like the Beatles that disbanded or Simon and Garfunkel, usually their solo careers 
maybe they even equal, but hardly anything is as good as getting the original band together. And there's still more interest in a love song reunion than there would be in a Chuck Gerard band concert because it would be such a cool thing for so many people. But, but God blessed it, and that started my solo career in 1975. It, it was a marvelous career, and um, people, if you go to YouTube, you can look up some of that. You can see him singing at uh, a Billy Graham crusade, and uh, there's uh, a, a lot of his uh, solo work up there that's just excellent. Wow. It was such incredible time, such incredible music, such quality. Uh, um, you don't see as much of that quality today. Do you have any message for... Um, the musicians today, the artists today, the the kids. I mean, your own daughter had an excellent band. You have a musical family there, Chuck. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I agree. Uh, do you have a message today for uh, young people in the field? CCM? Well, it's kind of the same thing. I've been asked the question over the years, and it generally is something in the the neighborhood. The question is, how can I get into contemporary Christian music? And it isn't like secular music, you know, where you uh, make a demo and try to get a record deal, uh, in my opinion. And what I always tell young people who are trying to, first of all, I get them to analyze, are they called into ministry? Because the way I look at it, uh, there's music that ministers, and then there's ministry that, well, actually a better, there's music that brings you entertainment, and then there's entertainment that brings you ministry would be a better way to put it. So it's kind of which you put first in your own mind. It's kind of like when we approach the Lord in worship, are we worshiping him because he's God or are we worshiping him to get something back? And either one's valid, but the more powerful one is to just worship God because he's worthy. So if you really feel you're called, that's the most important thing. And then I also encourage young musicians to analyze what their calling is. You know, maybe you're not called to be a full-time musician. Maybe you're called to be, uh, you know, a pastor and you'll just do music. Maybe you play in the worship band every couple of weeks to see if that's because so many people get so many young people get so enamored by the idea that I can have a record out or I can get a song on YouTube or Spotify. And that's really not the goal. The goal of a, of a Christian musician, in my estimation, is has God called you into the ministry and what how does he want to use what the gifts he's given you? For instance, there are some I'd say somebody like a Michael Carter or a John Fisher are more like teachers. They write songs that teach. Uh, I don't know how I'd describe mine, more evangelistic maybe. And then, so each person has their own emphasis that they, it's better if they can define that early so they can focus on that aspect of their of their ministry. And then, um, you know, as far as the, the business side of it, it has changed so much from the days when we started. There wasn't a business when we started. Business started with us, you know. Uh, Maranatha Records was formed from Calvary Chapel, and then all the Maranatha bands formed, and then eventually Sparrow Records formed, and Murr Records came out of Word, and all of a sudden this new genre of music began to spawn a kind of the beginnings of what be, was going to become a business. Now we've always struggled with the business and the ministry side of it. It's a conflict between art and commerce for. The, the whole history of humanity, you know, Michelangelo had to write, do paintings for the Pope, you know, because it was part of the deal. And um, so you have to learn how to mix those two things. And if it becomes too business oriented, you can lose your way is what I'm trying to say. And a lot of these kids today, I think, 
their influences are different. You know, we didn't have influences because we were creating the genre in a way, if it is a genre, you know, I guess contemporary Christian music is a genre, but uh, now they're, you know, like any younger generation, they're modeling themselves after Hillsong or after Hosanna music or whatever. And those entities become their influences and they're, they're very entertainment driven. You know, I, I think there's, I'm not trying to be negatively critical, but it's a different kind of an approach than we had in the old days where there was no consideration of money or fame. We were just doing it as under the Lord. So I think kids need to keep their heads straight if they really are serious about serving God with their music to, to really keep ministry foremost in their minds. And first of all, decide if they are called into that. And then if they are, they need to pursue that with integrity so that they can keep ministry first. I've always kept ministry first. I'll go out on the streets of San Francisco and play in public with my friends. I'll go into a home meeting with 20 people. You know, I, I, I don't care if God's called me to go there, I'll go there. I don't ask them for a certain fee or any of that. You know, I've been in ministry for 48 years now, and um, God's blessed it so and provided for me for 48 years. So I think it's really the basic motivation. That's the, the best counsel I could give a young person is to, you know, keep it. The music's always going to be influenced by everyone's influenced by their heroes, who they like. It's just a natural part of musical progression. You start out because you like a certain artist or group of artists or style of music, but then eventually you have to uh, identify your own identity musically and spiritually. So keeping that ministry call first and foremost in your motivation for why you're doing it is very important. And um, if you do that and you stay prayerful and you keep your life right, uh, then God can really use you. But Otherwise, it just becomes, you know, I live, I'll just end with this comment. I live in Nashville, Tennessee area, and we have churches galore. And they're all, the worship teams all have great musicians, the greatest in town. And you go in and all the music is excellent, but some of it is just more like soul. You know, it's just so good, but you're not really able to really get connected that much. And then others, even though they're the same uh, caliber of musicians have a real anointing on their life and it's a big difference that holy ghost being able to move through your life through your music and so i just always encourage kids to think more in the area of um, keeping it real with god keeping it real for ministry and then god will provide everything that they need uh if, if he's really called them into that it's a good test um, you listen people and chuck really spoke on the heart of the issue Yes, it's about that personal connection, that one-on-one -on -one with God, which out of that flows the rivers of life through your music uh, and through other things. I mean, potent words there and words of wisdom to live by. You know, it has been completely our tremendous honor to have you on today, Chuck, and I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be with us. Well, it's totally my pleasure, and I'm glad we got past all the technical stuff to get it all down. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I agree with that. And until next time, I'm Leah reminding you that God loves you.